0: Hello, well, Paul. Uh, hi. Hello, Paul. How are you doing? I am fine. Hello, Sean, and hello, Paul. Hello. Hi, Paul. Great, great, to, just, have great, great, to, great to have you. Great to see you. Sure. Yeah. My pleasure.
1: Yeah.
2: So are you are you, are you keeping well in this new business as usual of ours?
0: Well, I'm, I, I, I haven't had as much as a cold. Well, <laughs> this calendar year, I've been perfectly healthy because you don't meet people. You don't get their germs. So... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I haven't had a sore throat, which is, from my point of view, fantastic. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's, com- it's completely obviously different. And everyone has their own sacrifices. Some have serious sacrifices. For me, it's the fact that I do my radio shows, or, well, I do them from home. right? Uh, yeah. Because my husband had converted a storage room downstairs into a small studio uh, Mm. a couple of years ago, so we could record an audio. And it turns out that uh, it's suitable for doing my links to my radio producers, who then mix in the music. Uh, And so uh, I have two shows, one is Pick of the Pops on Radio 2, Mm. though the music obviously is already selected because it's the charts. But then there's one that I do cons- cons- uh, conceive myself, which is on the America's Greatest Hits Network. And uh, sorry, the Greatest Hits Network. So um, that I, I I conceive right here at this desk, which I am at this moment, and then we do it downstairs. But the idea of doing a radio show in what is basically a closet, um, <laughs> is not what I got into the profession for and
2: <laughs> well Paul to, look at, look at me we're in my kind of my so-called man cave come junk room come you know what <laughs> I mean'
0: it's, it's hardly yeah. glamorous <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, to have the workspace and the home space combined uh, does your head in frankly Because um, <laughs> mm. you're accustomed because there's then no room. That isn't contaminated. The only room that isn't contaminated <laughs> yes. is the terrace, and thank heaven, as you remember, we had a beautiful spring. Yes. Yeah. So I've been able to at least sit out uh, at times, um, but yeah, it's it's very odd. And the thing is, we won't be going back for ages. Mm. Um, first of all, the BBC has banned people from over seventy from entering the premises. Has it really? Yes, that's right. That, that affects a lot of programs. Uh, across the networks of course uh, and uh, is of course causing a lot of upset for the series of counterpoint my radio 4 music quiz which is due to be recorded in the autumn where um, hmm. they've they've booked some dates in the radio theater but will I will I be allowed in the building and Will the contestants be allowed on the Belmont? Because this year's Ivor Novello Awards, uh, which I've presented for 32 years. Yeah, I was maybe, going
2: to ask you if you're going to still present that.
0: Well, they were postponed from May until September. Mm. Now they've been cancelled. And the reason they've been cancelled is because the venue, the Grosvenor House Great Room, mm. has called up and said, we cannot get insurance against COVID. So, therefore, we cannot host any event. If so many as five people out of an audience of 1,200 were to fall ill and sue, there goes the Grosvenor House. Mm, Of course. So, see, this is the underbelly of what is causing a lot of these venue cancellations, Mm. is that the venues can't get insurance. Right. So, uh, uh, until they do, uh, it's unlikely that there will be any large indoor events.
3: There's something it's about.
2: chilling, isn't yeah. It? Yeah.
3: it? It is. Yeah, we're all having to adapt. I mean, uh, yeah, both Sean and I work from home. All of a sudden, I work for the NHS, and uh, I always sit on this sofa. And my wife comes in in the evening and says, "Don't sit on that sofa anymore. Sit on the other one because you've been working." But I, this is where I, I'm comfortable ah. sitting, so I just carry on sitting. Yes. There.
2: Yeah, There's yeah. Those, those blurred lines again.
3: Yeah, yeah but it, I'm, exactly. I'm used
2: to it. I work from home, and I've have done for about four years now, and mm-hmm. I, I don't mind it. And uh, I can kind of have a five o'clock cut off sometimes. Mm. But um, what I tend to do is get up and and work on on fun projects like this uh, from six in the morning till nine. (laughs) Um, And I kind of hardly notice that. But my wife just thinks I'm crazy.
0: Now, I've assumed because we're talking about 10 CC that you guys are in
3: Manchester but where are you actually? <laughs> I, I actually am in Manchester it's probably right. a coincidence but yes I'm in South Manchester in Shorten. Right okay. and I, I'm
2: down in Ulster in, in Warwickshire Paul um, okay. near, near Stratford-on-Avon. Right yeah okay. but I did I did used to live in Manchester but that's not why I fell in love with 10cc. Right no. yeah
0: right.
2: Which of course you know is, is one of the things we'd like to ask okay. you. Well, and Thank you Ooh. so much for joining us yes. this is a, yes. a thrill for us Paul.
0: Well, uh, uh, the Kostensi sea, uh are an unusual example of an act where I became at least a friendly acquaintance of each of them. Mm. Yeah. And through the years, uh, it's always been a pleasure to encounter any of them. And as a matter of fact, th- this has nothing to do with consequences, but I had the astonishing experience of being at a charity dinner Terence Hagan's Trust. And at my table was a young woman who was the granddaughter of Paul Raymond. Oh, yeah. Oh, Paul Raymond, the Soho multimillionaire property owner. Yeah. Mm. So she was uh, the granddaughter of Paul Raymond and inherited his Soho property fortune. Her father was Duncan Mackay. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. But here's the twist. She'd never met him,
1: (laughs) because he lives in
0: Australia. But I had met him. So (laughs) I was telling her what her father was like. (laughs) can you believe it. Um, That's one of
3: life's strangest experiences. That's fantastic. We we certainly didn't expect to get that little tidbit. um, (laughs) May may we just uh, start with our kind of formal introduction, Paul, if that's all right, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Are you ready to go, Sean?
2: Absolutely, Paul. Take it away. Welcome back to The Consequences Podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy.
3: Sean and I are really pleased today to be speaking to a very special guest. He's one of the most experienced and respected journalists, authors, commentators... Uh, working in the field of popular music. But not only that, this gentleman has an insider perspective on many of the key events in 10CC's history, and we can't wait to hear all about that. So welcome to the podcast today, Paul Gambaccini.
0: Well, thank you very much for inviting
4: me.
2: Welcome, Paul. And if I I can add a little PS to, to that intro. You might not believe this, but 15 months ago when Paul and I started doing this sort of broadcast thing, up in a bedroom here above my head um, when we started launching into the Consequences episodes, the very start of our project. Believe it or not, you were the, the very first person we fantasised about speaking to. Do you remember that, Paul?
3: Yes, of course, because, uh, well, Paul, your, your diary uh, and your line notes on Consequences really set the scene for the entire episode, uh, I guess we, we, we better get straight to the elephant in the room, Paul. Do, do you still have your consequences, diaries, and have you by any chance brought them with you?
2: I checked my in and all my equipment
3: and logged them in my diary. My piano still needed tuning. Above me, in my attic,
2: four conflicting forces were about to gather.
0: Perhaps only I knew what the day would hold. No, it's the answer, I'm afraid. Well, (laughs) I'm not saying that that I've destroyed them. Um, Like many people under lockdown, I'm I'm going through some of my uh, back pages, as Bob Dylan might say. Hmm. Uh, I I haven't encountered them, but I haven't looked for them. That part of my life uh, was, uh, of course, an offshoot of my work for Rolling Stone magazine Hmm. because that's how I met 10CC, is I did an article on them for Rolling Stone. We'll probably come to that in a minute. Yes, indeed. Please. Um, But, um, like Paul Simon, when he was asked, why don't you release albums with the same frequency that you used to, he said, as you get older, you censor yourself more. Right. Instead of just rattling things off, you think, oh, actually, that sentence isn't so good. I'll I'll rewrite that one. And and you find that uh, what used to be a natural part of your self-expression is now almost mannered because you're vetting everything. Um, I think it's probably inevitable for most writers, but I... When asked now if I would write uh, liner notes or um, a press release for someone, I tend to say no, just because um, I want perfection now. And in those days, I didn't demand perfection. Whether I achieved perfection or not, it's immaterial. <laughs> I was, in 1973, which was my Annus Mirabilis, um, <laughs> the, um, uh, writing for Rolling Stone magazine uh, from London. Yes. Now I was still living in Oxford because it was my final year as a student at Oxford. But I was writing for Rolling Stone, I started on Radio One, and I began the Guinness Book of British Hit Singles with Tim Rice and his brother. And this was all in the same year. And uh, I I was in a very lucky position at Rolling Stone because the London editor, Andrew Bailey, though beloved by all, was self-admittedly lazy. So I could just say, can I write a story on so-and-so? And And he would say yes. And the American office would almost automatically print it because they thought, oh, well, Andrew knows what he's doing, so (laughs) we'll print this. And thus, uh, in 1973, at the age of 24, I had more bylines in Rolling Stone than anyone else, including this article on 10CC we're going to talk about in a few seconds. (laughs) Um, But in that year, I was just spewing it out. Um, I would uh, interview people, I'd write it up, and I'd give no further thought about it because I'd be interviewing the next person doing that. So um, I had no time to second guess myself. Uh, which is a wonderful form of innocence. I remember, oh boy, here comes a name drop. Uh, I was having dinner with Elton John, and a uh, <laughs> and uh, with my uh, now ex, uh, which shows you how this was some time ago. But my ex said, "How did you do it?" Um, so many albums and hits in such a short period of time because we're talking about the golden age of Elton yeah. which is when he had seven consecutive American number one albums two a year yeah. and he just said we didn't think about it we were young men we were doing what we loved and we just got on with it who walked me down the church when I'm 60 years of age when the ragged dog
4: they gave me has been 10 years in luxury:
0: Well, that's exactly what the attitude of all of us, meaning our generation, was. perhaps because there was almost no money in it, believe it or not, because this was before Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. which means the tax rates were very high. and uh, the, the business hadn't cottoned on to the fact that you needed to pay artists a lot of money. So everybody was just doing it for the love, basically. Mm-hmm. And we all mixed. I remember uh, Tony King, who's the only man ever to work for the Beatles, Stones, and Elton, has said he longs for the 1970s when everyone mixed naturally mm-hmm. at the same events. Yeah. Artists, secretaries, DJs, journalists... Promo men, a and men, because everybody was into it for the music. And there was so much music coming out because everyone was still doing one or two albums a year, unlike today. So you'd meet everybody all the time. And so there was a kind of equality which really was lost when the economic caste system uh, came into being. But uh, we all loved that period of time and then that was the period of time when i got to know 10cc well,
3: please please tell us about that first meeting absolutely with the band well what happened was
0: as you know they had a number one with rubber bullets yep so i thought i would like to write about them for rolling stuff <laughs> i mean this is seriously i know this is a golden age for me, because I had a similar arrangement on Radio One with John Peel's producer, John Walters. John Walters had uh, a weekly rock music magazine program uh, called Rock Week, which became Rock Speak, or Rock Speak became Rock Week. Uh, I think it was Rock Speak became Rock Week, so it was Rock Speak. Anyway, John just let me interview whoever I wanted. (laughs) So I would interview on Radio One people who would never otherwise be on Radio One, such as Tom Rush, Jerry Butler, Bonnie Raitt. Uh, Your listeners may or may not know these names, but Mm. to me, they were all great artists. So I was having a ball. And with Rolling Stone, I said, "Okay, uh, this group uh, have an outstanding record. Uh, I had not thought that Neanderthal Man was an outstanding record. (laughs) Um, Even though I had played it, uh, as a boy DJ on my college radio station, which was a thousand watt AM commercial radio station in New Hampshire, where I was a DJ from 67 to 70. I came over to England to get away from Richard Nixon, <laughs> who I could not stand. And and I could not understand why Americans could not see through him and his vice president, Spiro Agnew. Well, of course, they both resigned in disgrace. But by that time, I was over here hmm. and I. Um, but Hot Legs, of course, had this world hit with Neanderthal Man, which I'm sure has been the subject of another one of your podcasts. <laughs> uh, and if not, you don't have to say much because it's a long record. <laughs> and um, i w- w- this is interesting. I was familiar with the songs that Graham had written, Graham Goldman. Yeah. Now you can say, oh, wait a minute. This is 1973. There's no Internet. You can't look up anything on iPhone because there are no phones of that nature. So how did you know that? And it's just if you were a fan of music, you really had to pay attention. So we paid attention. Hmm. So that's how I knew that this fellow, Graham Gouldman, was big news. And, uh, and I don't have to tell you that Eric uh, had sung lead on Groovy Kind of Love, which was a world hit. It was a number two in America and then hot legs happened and uh so rubber bullets i thought okay this this group has a backstory and this is a fantastic record i was always drawn to groups which were not just lead singer and the band Mm. the Who were different because uh, they basically had two equally important men pete townsend the guitarist writer and roger Dalton, the singer plus moon world-class drummer not to disparage john entwistle uh but Nonetheless, those two frontmen were amazing. Yes. Uh, and the Stones, well, you had Mick and Keith, so that counted as two. And of course, the Beatles were the exemplar. They were the miracle group. That, for some artists, I remember it was either it was one of, one of the Foo Fighters, Dave Grohl, or else Tom Petty said that he, or Rick Rubin. The producer, anyway, he said, the Beatles are proof of the existence of God. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) You know, I mean, how do you get those people together? Mm. Anyway, 10CC, though not the Beatles, were four very, very talented people. So I arranged to go up to interview them. And I lived my life on British Rail at that point because I was still a student at Oxford. Indeed, I had memorized the train times between Oxford and Paddington, London, <laughs> uh, so that I wouldn't waste time at all. I would I would take a break from my studies, go into London, do my music business stuff, come back to Oxford every night, mm. and and that way really I did finish my degree without uh, more tension than anyone else because. It was the time that they were putting into their extracurricular activities or their sports that I was doing with the music business. So it was, I wasn't actually slacking. I just wasn't doing student activities. Anyway, I get up to Stockport, and I'm walking to Strawberry Studios, and, and the first thing that struck me was the incline of the road. It, actually it is a, steep, isn't it? It is steep. And, and, and Graham Goldman loves the fact that my first memory is walking in to the studio and thinking, how can the floor be flat when the road is so... (laughs) 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 And I'm trying to figure it out. Anyway, this is why I'm not an architect. (laughs) My calculations show that the building will tend to fall outwards from the inside rather than vice versa.
4: You have worked
0: all this out? Oh yes, I've always been very meticulous about being prepared. The guys, were all very welcoming, partly because of the respect uh, that everyone had for Rolling Stone magazine. I mean, it was the greatest card-carrying testimonial you could have, because it was still at that time the Bible of the counterculture. That's Mm -hmm. what it was called nowadays, and people wouldn't even know what you're talking about. Um, The Bible of the counterculture, which it was. All, uh, well, many artists read it regularly. And uh, so we, we just talked about uh, their backgrounds, how Strawberry came into being, and the song Rubber Bullets. And the article is, I wonder if it's Googleable. It's, it's in the, uh, there is a, one of those Rolling Stone CD ROMs where every, every issue of Rolling Stone is compressed into one digit of a groove. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, the article still exists uh but uh that uh, wasn't the end of my knowing them because of, i would go see them in gates and um this is what i look back now and we did this so casually <clears throat> uh if so, okay someone in my position well obviously without even knowing how privileged i was uh no press office was going to say no if i wanted to go to a gate Um, because I was representing Radio 1 and Rolling Stone. Now, to me, I have to say, I was just so glad to be on another radio station, after my student radio station. I had no idea of the importance of Radio Mm 1 at first. It took me a couple of years to come (laughs) up to that. Uh, But anyway, so uh, I I went to a lot of 10cc gigs. I went to a million Elton gigs. I mean, I, I really went to a lot of gigs. McCartney. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so I followed 10CC through their very intense, messed up history, um, including uh, leaving Jonathan King. He just sold his publishing interest in either them or ABBA, believe it or not. He had a tiny slice of ABBA uh, in Britain, but but Jonathan... um, when 10TC went to Phonogram, he got... Um,
2: he got a massive percentage, didn't he?
0: Yes, yes. What's the what's the trade word for that? Like a, and, sever- uh,
2: like a severance royalty, wasn't it? It was, a, it was the, one of the yeah, best Yeah, it was a golden it? handshake. Yeah, um, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and... Um, <laughs> okay, here comes another extremely weird fun fact. <laughs> when Jonathan King was in prison, His secretary, who would visit him regularly, said to him one day, we got a check for (laughs) $100,000. And he said, why? And he said, because The Game has sampled Wall Street Shuffle. Now, there was a rapper in America called The Game. And the game happened to have a number one album. It was his period of fame. Yes. And so for the publishing rights to Wall Street Shuffle, Jonathan King got $100,000 while in jail. Now, this is the ultimate example of earning while you don't work. <laughs> um, Passive income. Override, override. That's the expression yeah. I was looking at. Uh, yeah. Override. Yeah. So oh, anyway, uh, so the boys, as bands are always called, um, thought, well, we can actually probably have an international breakout with an international company rather than sticking with UK because rubber bullets only got up to uh, about 73 instead, something like that. Mm. So uh, they signed with Phonogram and uh, of course the original soundtrack uh, happened. She doesn't need money. And that was another example of perfect timing. It was like John Reed managing Queen beginning with A Night at the Opera. I mean, how can you? Yeah. You know, the timing was just incredible. So uh, so now they were phonogram artistes. I will always remember, well, colleague, the personalities involved. You've probably done an interview with Harvey Lisberg, I would imagine. We have,
3: yes. We, we, we've met Harvey several times. He's a, he's
0: a great character.
2: Fantastic character, yeah.
0: Harvey is one of those people who always seemed old, even when he was young, <laughs> because he had a mature head hmm. uh, and he was a mature business person. I mean, he realized, for example, that Herman's Hermits were serious artists when it came to making money. You know, forget it. I, I don't even remember if he signed Herman's Hermits, but they were Mancunians, and they were up there. So when he would talk about Hermann's Hermanns, it would be as, you know, this is a money machine, and uh, which, which it was. Uh, and, uh, and Harvey was always good-natured. I mean, I, I okay, I, it's easy, perhaps, to be good-natured to someone like myself, who's only interested in positive things about your artist. Hmm. But usually, if somebody's nasty, you witness it during a phone call with somebody else or something um, where they break character or in other words go back into
3: character <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
0: and uh, so Harvey was always a treat Ken Malifant
3: yeah we, we've interviewed we've met him Ken as well. as
0: well Yeah. i got to say Ken Malifant was so positive yeah. okay this is going to lead us into consequences that he was willing to do anything that Kevin Law wanted to do. He thought along the lines of 1970. Now, what's 1970? 1970 was the year the 60s ended, and I don't mean that in just the most simplistic sense. The Beatles became four artists. Diana Ross and the Supremes became two artists Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions became two artists Simon and Garfunkel became two artists and all of them were successful so if 10cc become two artists they will be equally successful well that was the 70s thought process so he just gave Kevin Law an open check. Of course, they'd made a pile on I'm Not in Love in the original soundtrack.
1: Hmm.
0: Uh, for people who don't know, I'm Not in Love, in addition to being a number one in Britain, was a number two in Billboard in America. Yes. Uh, and it, indeed, it still made uh, um, the Descendants of Phonogram a lot of money when it was on the Guardians of Galaxy uh, soundtrack. Right, right. Uh. So Jonathan King did not have an override on that. But anyway, um, (laughs) I'm Not In Love was just a world hit. So Phonogram thought, okay, let's do it. Two acts now. And so Kevin and Loll had a brilliant, in retrospect, a business proposal, which was to come up with a business proposal that you could not refute, because you could not understand it.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> how, very, uh, how very true.
0: <laughs> we are going to make an album to show the artistic possibilities of a new instrument we have invented called the Gizmo.
2: But, and that siren sounds a little bit like a Gizmo. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Where I live on the South Bank of London, you occasionally get this. Yes, yeah. sirens out. So uh, what? Uh, what was the gizmo? Well, the only phrase that music executives can understand was a guitar synthesizer. Mm. Well, they knew what the Moog synthesizer uh, had done. And it is pronounced Moog, even though everybody says Moog. Yes. Stevie Wonder had shown us what was possible. So everybody said, oh, great. You know, This is going to be like a talking book. Stevie Wonder, you know, all of the stuff is on the synthesizer. Great. Okay. So, uh, but they weren't going to record it at Strawberry because they'd broken up and uh, they were going to record it at The Manor. Mm. And I remember when they said to me, would would you come to see us at The Manor? And of of course, uh, that's a rather general expression, (laughs) you know, and I'm thinking, which manor? Mm. (laughs) Um, But no, it was The Manor. Were you,
2: were you still in Oxford at the time, Paul?
0: No, I'd left Oxford University. I lived in London, so now I was getting the train to Paddington, going in the other direction. <laughs> uh, but at least it was a familiar route. Wasn't this where Mike Oldfield had done some work? On Absolutely, the- yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. yeah Tubular Bells was recorded there, but but the first the first half of Consequences w- was recorded at Strawberry North. Okay. Uh, in- in, in the middle of the night, because I think they had to, running as a commercial enterprise, they had to get out during the day to let other people came in. But Kevin Lowell worked mm. through the night. And as you say in your liner notes, they stayed overnight at the, the Piccadilly Hotel, I think, in, yeah. in the centre of Manchester.
2: Yeah. And I think it just became untenable, didn't it? Because they were only able to grab, say, midnight to nine o'clock in the morning or something at Strawberry. And I think maybe as the, the pressure got heavier from the record company, they found that they had to spend all day in a studio. So maybe, Paul, that's why they, they moved to Manor. You I, I came know. to
3: the Manor? Yeah, I don't yeah.
2: know. Just to maximise well, the recording
4: another- time. Nine
3: o'clock in the morning You've been
4: this way before But something seems to be different And you can't quite put your finger on it at all
0: There is another... Uh-huh. Okay. There, there were two attitudes towards making a record in the 1970s. One was a genius minority view, which the police had. Mm. Their first album cost them £6,000 because they had it ready to record the second they walked into the studio. So they just walked into the studio, did it, and that was it. Yeah. So they made a pile of profit. On the other extreme was Fleetwood Mac, and they would just go into a studio and just noodle away as they say in the music and of course there were five of them and they would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars recording an album
1: hmm.
0: okay now they could because they were profiting but that's throwing a lot of money away unfortunately that was the attitude that consequences had was the most organic recording project I've ever known. And then it turned out to be something it wasn't meant to be. Um, so they, they get down to the manor, and what you say was first a virtue, they can record 24-7. <laughs> but this meant that they did just record whenever they wanted to, and they thought, you know what? It'd be nice to have Sarah Vaughan sing this song. So, they wait until they could get Sarah Vaughan. Uh, So Sarah Vaughan got flown in, and uh, uh, she—and that was a great track, by the way. Yeah, absolutely.
4: Yeah.
0: But in no way was. The album set out to be a demonstration of Sarah Vaughan. Mm. (laughs) It was meant to be a demonstration of the gizmo. (laughs) Um, But once you start, as with some novelists, and you don't know where you're going to go, you go to some mighty strange places until you finally decide, oh, that must be the end. uh, So it was that novelistic uh, approach. And um, so each time I would go back, I would be surprised. Uh, because there'd be somewhere else.
2: Total mission creep, wasn't it, basically?
0: Yes, the ultimate example, and we might as well cut to the chase, is Peter, Peter Cook. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Because uh, I remember the original decision was, is this going to be a single album? Or now is it going to have to be a double? Because there are so many things we can do, we can make it a double. But once Peter started... they couldn't stop him <laughs> and, and it wound up, as you know, a triple album, yeah. which meant that it was a box set. It wasn't just a double album. And um, when I, uh, you know, I, I had not known Peter personally until this, but my actually single most vivid memory of consequences concerns Peter, because when Phonogram were launching it, consequences. They did so in Amsterdam.
2: Were, were you there, I, Paul?
0: Yes, I was. Mm-hmm. They they flew in. You, well, you must have heard about it. Then they flew in the European press again. Yes. Money, shmoney. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But in those days, again, pre-Thatcher, expenses could be deducted from tax. Right. So record companies did the most exorbitant uh, press kit, press runs, press trips. I mean, two of the most infamous, you you probably know, um, United Artists, I think it was, flew... A a, a group of British journalists over to New York to see Brinsley Schwartz, (laughs) and they arrived too late for the game. Wow! (laughs) (laughs) So to New York, Um, (laughs) Ireland flew a group of us to uh, Edinburgh to see Kevin Ayers uh, play in the Edinburgh Festival, and because we arrived during the day and he was going to be on at night, we had a nice little trip to Perth. I Mm. remember a side trip to Perth. And then Kevin Ayers came on late at night, completely smacked out of it on something or other, and basically ruined his career. Because the, this was the, he was in front of the whole press, and he just blew it. Poor um, guy. Okay. Hmm. He came so close to the big chunk. And then uh, I remember uh, Braun, Braun's records, which was the label of Jerry Braun, Flew a plane load over us to the Pitts Gloria restaurant in the Alps, which was where, on Her Majesty's secret oh, yes. service. Yeah, yeah.
2: that weird shaped uh, restaurant up the mountain. Yes, that's right. Yeah,
0: yeah. wonderful. And, uh, so there was actually a plane load of this. Well, all Europe Europeans. This is European wide. This is for Uriah Heep. I mean, <laughs> you know, this is not Sergeant Pepper. Um, and we, we, so we get there, and I'm on a plane, and John Wetton, who was on that album playing bass for you right here. And he, of course, uh, became more famous with Roxy music and then hugely famous with the group Asia.. Yeah. And anyway, as we're uh, coming into land at Bern in between two mountains, and it's a private plane, and it's kind of uh, shaky. <laughs> John said. This is something I never have grown to like, (laughs) meaning (laughs) the landing of a private life. Anyway, so we then had to take a coach and then a cable car to the pit gloria, where we were all advised uh, not to have more than one drink because of the rarefied atmosphere. So Alan Freeman, uh, my hero, uh, had two drinks and collapsed face down into his plate of food. During the <laughs> uh, and also I saved Ken of Uriah Heep from falling off an Alp because um, the photographers wanted a, a photo call of the group, Uriah Heep, up against a snowy backdrop. Yeah. And then, and then of course, they kept saying, um, can you take one step back, please? <laughs> you know? And I'm, I'm just looking because I'm not a photographer and I'm thinking, uh, actually, two steps back is not going to be advantageous. <laughs> so uh, I, I just said, stop. So I, I, I saved him from a snowy death. Um, but anyway, so this is what it was like uh, with the launch of uh, albums that the record companies thought they were going to make at least the cost of the launch back with in those days when you could spend anything on expenses mm. but you had to pay 83% top rate income tax. So uh, we're in Amsterdam and we had the launch and uh, it's traditionally awkward of, of hearing um, people from various European countries trying to communicate uh, with the artist, what was your intention on this? <laughs> you know, and of course, there is no intention if you know no one can I mean they just do it and they think and then they come to a moment and they have an intention hmm. um, But the following morning, Sunday morning, before we got a flight back to London, Peter Cook and I had a ninety minute walk in Amsterdam, and I came to realize that this is a thrill that very few people have probably ever had, yeah. 90 minutes alone, with Peter Cook. And and he was just on form. And um, I remember, we came upon a vending machine that sold sausages. Now, this sounds impossible, but <laughs> there, there were dried sausages, kind of like there was a dried sausage at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, and my brother thought, this is where we've come from, Jackson Pollock? Anyway... Um, <laughs> So, uh, Peter just went into this spontaneous riff on dried sausages. You can imagine it was pretty amusing. Sausage, egg, chips, beans, and gravy.
3: Hold on, Shirley Powell. Who else? <laughs> a
0: culinary tone poem. Oh, washed down with a Guinness which can only be described as perfection. Oh, oh yes. The reason we were walking around for 90 minutes is because he was looking for a bar. Yeah. <laughs> he was trying to find a bar that was open on a Sunday morning. But that was the beginning of a relationship with Peter Cook, which turned out to have consequence. Because Peter, as you may know, was the founder of Private Eye. Yes. The yeah. And uh, in the lead item, one issue, uh, a few years later, uh, the chaplain of Windsor Castle who had been the chaplain of my college at Oxford, was impugned falsely in the lead item in private eye. It was, politically speaking, an attempt to get a dig at the Queen Mother because the Queen Mother liked this chaplain. But of course you can't say, we don't like the Queen Mother, so you you go after the chaplain. And the chaplain came to me and said, "Uh, what do I do? you know, this is a false statement. And I said, well, I'll go see Peter. And I, I, I went to Peter in his home in Hampstead, and I explained to him. And he said, all right, I'll have them fix it. And son of a gun, the next issue of Private Eye, the lead item, was a retraction. Hmm. The lead item, because the uh, falsehood had been item, And Peter insisted that they give it equal prominence. So Peter was, to me, a real gent. I had loved him anyway because I had been present at the Amnesty International Benefit oh. when he had done Here Comes the Judge. Wow. One, which of, one was, of British
2: comedy's classic moments. Wonderful.
0: It was the greatest live moment of comedy I'd ever witnessed. And, uh, of course, the other people who were supporters of Amnesty and the business were there. The various Pythons were there. Billy Connolly was there. And as you know, uh, Peter, before he went on, said to Billy Connolly, Billy, what do they call uh, a homosexual in Glasgow? And he said, a player of the pink oboe.
4: Okay. Yes. So,
0: uh, which, of course, he
2: uses, doesn't he? He
0: uses in the, a self-confessed player of the pink oboe. Um, and his timing was so fantastic.
3: You'll have noticed that three of the defendants have chosen very wisely to exercise their inalienable right not to go into the witness box to answer a lot of impertinent questions.
0: <laughs> and then when he got to the end and he said, I'll leave you to retire, as should I, <laughs> consider your verdict of not guilty. Yes, <laughs> and you know the It's wonderful. It yeah. is completely wonderful. Yeah. Now another weird development out of this, uh, which is, and you find that if you, if you start talking to somebody like me who's been around for a few decades, <laughs> everything works into what Carol King and Don McLean would call a tapestry. So, when uh, I had a lawyer represent me successfully against the Metropolitan Police, as you may recall, um, in the travesty of the witch hunt of last decade, hmm. um, I received an inquiry saying, Could I pass on this person's particulars to my lawyer? Could my firm represent him? And it was Norman Scott. Oh, my word? Norman Scott was still seeking justice uh, against uh, Jeremy Thorpe and he still wanted his insurance card and this was in the uh, TV yes, of course
1: Oh yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: and uh, anyway so to think that all those years later I would become involved with Norman Scott I mean this is beyond belief wow. anyway Peter Cook, Peter Cook. Uh, back to consequences Paul discipline yourself we're loving it Paul <laughs> uh, don't
2: worry you just ramble away it's
0: fabulous yeah quite well, a fancy <laughs> <night> like um <laughs> So Kevin Law were fans of Peter, as was everybody who was sane. Hmm. And I guess maybe they were hoping that everything he did was to be on the level of genius of Here Comes the Judge. So he just went on and on and on. And suddenly it was a Peter Cook album with interludes by Godly and Cream.
4: Hmm.
0: Actually, they weren't even called Godly and Cream. Hmm. It was just Law, Cream, and Kevin Godly. And... um, as we were doing it. And there was a point where I thought, and maybe it's evident from my commentary in the book, that
3: this is off the leash.
0: Mm. You know, they they don't know where they're going.
3: Yeah, it is evident. You're, the the liner notes are actually pretty critical looking at them. they They're not what you'd normally associate with liner notes. You kind of say, you know what what's going on here is this going to work it's too grandiose they're planning yeah. they're putting the cart before the horse they're planning live you know uh, it shows and they they then they're never going to fulfill them that kind of thing yeah you must have seen what what was happening
2: the fact yeah. that the very very first item in your in your diary is um, in capitals. Um, I don't know if this is going to work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that's, that says it all,
0: doesn't it, really? Yes, yes. Well, you know, one of the first things they showed, me because remember there was a visual aspect to this as well, yeah. was the construct of the big head with the open mouth. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, in real life, it's tiny. Right. Mm uh um i mean it would fit on your desk whatever size your desk is right now um now th- they made it look w- using perspective and lighting like it was gigantic mm-hmm. and I, yeah. I really admired that but i thought you know we're we're we are making a mountain out of a molehill here yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's successful in terms of this big head but is it going to be successful with everything <laughs> Um, if someone had actually suggested a budget, then there might have been a plan, okay, you know, just as radio uh, DJs have to back time, that's the verb that we use, you back time, so you know that if you're going to get out at a certain time, you better put such and such a record on 15 minutes before. There was no back timing on this. There was no, you've got to have uh, side three, track two, completed by... Uh, so and I thought I mean I, I loved going there I always loved seeing Kev and Kev and the food was great <laughs> um, and it was pretty it was a pretty location what's not to like hmm. um, but I just thought thank god I'm not paying um, hmm. and by the way uh, the manor was uh, subsequently the site of one of the most incredible gigs I've ever seen. Richard Branson threw a huge party. And the cabaret were this unknown American group called the Stray Cats. And they did a version of Stop in the Name of Love, which is so fantastic. I thought, this could be a hit single. Now, so I came away from that gig thinking Stray Cats are a hit group. I didn't, of course, realize that. They'd have the hits they had. I thought they were going to have Stop in the Name of Love. But um, nonetheless, um, they were just so good. They were so photogenic. My God. Mm. Um, But then, my guest, at that party, stepped on a blade of grass. He was barefoot. And it, like a paper cut, Mm. went deep into his foot. So I'm looking at this foot. there's no blood, but there's, there is like you can see about half an inch into his foot, I'm thinking. Good and also, I remember Richard Skinner, who was uh, on Radio One <laughs> at the time, I think he was presenting part of oh, he came from Newsbeat. that's right. And he uh, he he then got onto the Saturday evening, Saturday afternoon program, which followed mine actually. Um, mm-hmm. It was the interview program. Yeah, Andy Batten Foster was also on it. But Richard uh, got a bit um, tipsy, and he, he said, "Paul, I just want you to know, I'm not after your show." <laughs> And I, I said to my guest, I said, that means he's after my show. <laughs> and then, and then uh, about five minutes later, he came around again. I said, Paul, I just want you to know I'm not after your show. <laughs> and I said to my guest, that means he's after my show. <laughs> um, but anyway, the manor was a beautiful place. Uh, idyllic. Who wouldn't want to record there? Indeed. No, I mean, try to imagine a country environment a beautiful, how much of it was authentic, I don't know, but um, period building, nice food, quality studio, record at your own pleasure. I mean, huh, no wonder they just stayed. You yeah. know, maybe they just wanted to live there. Um, but anyway, finally, uh, I think Ken Malafant finally pulled the plug after three discs. <laughs> And, uh, I mean, what was the cost of the card for the box, for heaven's sake? Yeah.
2: I mean, no wonder it cost 11, 12 quid to buy at the time. Crikey. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, um, it comes out, okay, fatal, no hit single. Mm. I mean, the first single only got to the 30s or 40s. I forget what, you know, there's no I'm not in love. Whoops. There's no, even I'm Mandy Flyme, (laughs) you know. um, Mm -hmm. You then get into Damage Limitation. And I remember they uh, remixed a single to try to get a hit single off of
3: it. First thing in the morning or something like that. Five o'clock in the morning. Five
0: five Five o'clock in the morning,
3: which is a wonderful track.
0: It is a wonderful track. You know, this isn't to say this isn't a good album. Yeah. It's just,
3: it's just not a pop album. Mm -hmm. Um, But Kevin Kevin Lowell were... You know, they were art, they were artists, art students as well. Do you think the whole, I mean, they were obviously a bit fed up with the 10TC machine Mm. and this was their, uh, this was the way they got away from it. Maybe it was the process that was important, not even the end result when it comes down to it.
2: And that's certainly, that's certainly the Lowell's philosophy even now, isn't it? It's all about the process.
3: Yeah,
0: well, I uh, I would agree completely because uh, they were artists. Uh, the fact that part of their art was making records and was the most commercial part of their art at the time didn't mean that they thought that any other form of their art was less expensive. For example, when they made the album L. Yeah, yes. They uh, they phoned me one night and said, uh, would you uh, do a spoken piece for our album? We've got a character called the Bad Samaritan. This is the Bad Samaritan. Hello, loved one. Sorry there was nobody here to take your call personally. However, we understand what you're going through. How you've traveled life's highway with your smile upside down. And now you think you've found the ultimate answer to all your problems. Don't be hasty. Why waste a life?
1: Wait till there's a crowd down below. Give a little when you go.
2: We were going to ask you about that, Paul. We know enough. him well. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: All right. Okay. Well, yeah, they just called me at home hmm. and said, "and said, okay, would you say this? And I said, wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 it doesn't it's sound. Dark. <laughs> this is not my image. But on the other hand, uh, I trust him. Yeah. And they said that in context of work, I said, oh, all right. So I did it over the phone. I literally phoned it
3: in. I was going to ask about that, because I wonder whether they recorded your voice beautifully and then put the phone effect on it, but it actually was a phone call, was it? It was a phone call.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. uh, Fast forward uh, more than a decade later, uh, and it's the London premiere of the film Wayne's World. Yeah. Which I am strangely hosting. Um, but I'm glad to host it because it's a good movie. Yeah. And uh, Mike Myers' brother comes up to me shyly and says, "Are you the bad Samaritan?" What? Wow. Does he really? <laughs> yes. Fame indeed, and, crazy. And, and Mike Myers has said that he received a lot of his education in British music from his brother, right? Who's just praised for British rock music. And I thought, now this is hilarious. How many people in the world know me as the bad Samaritan?
2: Well, (laughs) there's two two here, and there's a few hundred, I reckon.
0: Of
3: our listeners, yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right,
0: okay. So that's how that happened. Um, Wow. And you see, (laughs) but as I knew them, and of course, oh my God, (laughs) Uh, I I just recall when Kevin came to um, a birthday party I had once, and he. Uh, retired to a room with Elton John um, it was not for sex let's put it that way anyway um, no sorry you may wish to take that out I don't know but anyway um, in other words we we would go to each other's houses mm-hmm. and I forget did Kevin own Keith Moon's old house? yes, yes he, did. he did he did yeah because I was there for Keith Moon uh, and Keith Moon i got to say this. I mean, if he liked you, he loved you. Mm. And because I worked with John Walters, who had produced Keith Moon's miniseries on Radio One, he was just completely nice to me. And I had a good look at his jukebox. So out of 50 songs, 40 of them were surf. Mm -hmm. He was just such a surf nut that he had a surf jukebox and anyway so then I go I drive to a party at Kevin and Sue's and it's Keith Moon's house <laughs> uh, but there's no Keith Moon. Yeah. Um, that was kind of strange. But uh, as I said, everybody was sharing with everybody else in every way. And I remember LOL saying to me one day when they had just started making videos, and he said, We have just seen something, and you are not going to believe it, but you can put any image into any existing piece of film. It will be possible to have Hitler getting a ticker tape parade down Broadway. Mm. Now I thought, what? (laughs) But of course, nowadays, that sounds like the simplest of deeds, which millions of children can do on their computers. But in those days, that was real cutting edge tech. Right. And, And what those guys were doing with their videos was cutting edge tape. I mean that cry uh, mm-hmm. film where the, the faces were morphing into each other. No one had ever seen that. That's why that song went top 20 in America because MTV wanted to keep playing the video. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a very rare but real example of a video helping a record like Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes which in itself, and I've said this before, was a strange uh, experience for me because one day Freddie Mercury said to me, oh, we made a short film yesterday with Bruce Gowers. I mean, as if, oh, we had a (laughs) coffee at Starbucks yesterday. Um, You know, but of course, uh, short
2: Revolutionary, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, you know. But at the time, you don't know. And this is what's so wonderful about these artistic projects of the 70s. At the time, you don't know. And this six-minute piece of segmented song called Bohemian Rhapsody could have been a complete flop. Instead, it's turned out to be one of the classic recordings of all time. The video is revolutionary. And Godley and Cream were capable of doing an unsuccessful artistic project. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, consequences. Or a very successful one, like the video, To Cry or The Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Uh, video. Um or indeed the, the first four 10cc albums. Yeah. You could argue. Yeah. 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 So in other words, never bet against them. Mm. But don't always bet for them. I mean um and and I like the fact actually that they uh brushed themselves down after consequences and uh just kept going.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, they didn't say okay now we've got to do another three-disc uh, album to see if we can make one work. No, they just did other things. They they always keep noting. And that's that's something that you have to really respect them for. Whereas, you, of course, Eric, Eric and Graham are songwriters and record makers. Yes. Uh, and, and, and their desire, as you well know, and you've undoubtedly well-documented, was just to make more good records.
2: Yes, absolutely. Do you... Do you feel that Godly and Cream's records got more successful artistically, Paul, after Consequences? Do you admire the later stuff more than you do Consequences? Or just in a different way?
0: In in, in a different way, because um, it's like clay that's been shaped. Mm. It's been sculpted into something beautiful. I mean even in wedding bells, for example, Hmm. the the sort of rush of sound. I mean, that's like a miniature version of on But it's used in a distilled way. Hmm. I mean, the record's shorter, obviously. Uh, The sound is less expansive, but it's appropriate for the subject and for the song. And that's a key to success in popular music when you are appropriate. To the project, regardless of length, people will stay interested. The problem with consequences is now there were very few people in the in the marketplace who were interested in hearing a Tennessee song, followed by some strange instrumental, followed by Sarah Vaughan, followed by Peter Cook comedy. Yeah. I mean, I mean that that's really a night out, as you know. Yeah.
3: Particularly in 1977 with with punk. It was the timing, as as has often been said, was couldn't have been worse for consequences. No.
0: Yes, the, the timing and the economy. Um, yes, yeah. let's remember that uh, this was the year of uh, crisis. What crisis? I I I, I mean. I, I mean, 1979 was the election, but I think mm. 77 things had started to go really sour. We had the 73 to 75 period, which everybody knows about for the power cuts and the three-day week and TV goes off at 10:30, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. But protracted uh, labor relations disputes mm. uh, is 77 and 78. And it's where we got into this very unfortunate situation, which we even had at the BBC, where the right to strike became the necessity to strike, to show that you were men, to show that you were uh, not weak, you had to go on strike. So we even had, um, we were waiting at the BBC, you know, you know are the unions going to go on strike at some point? Sure enough, um, one Friday, Uh, There was a technical union, and I don't know which one. So uh, all four, for there were then four networks, collapsed into one single sustaining service. And a program was drawn up for the weekend as to who would be on when. And it would be people from different networks Mm. taking turns. Now, Friday evening, it started with Kid Jensen, and he actually had to do it. You're listening to the BBC Radio All Network Service, and this is Kid Jensen, hoping you've enjoyed the last two hours of music. So he was BBC Radio for that <laughs> Friday evening, and I was due to BBC Radio <laughs> on the Saturday afternoon, and I thought, I really don't want this to happen. And thank God, uh, having been convinced that they meant it, management made a deal with the unions, and so I could go back to being just Radio 1. Hawk
4: and Bikini
0: But uh, this was a period in which uh, no-one had a ton of money, yeah. and uh, to ask young people for 11 or 12 quid, out of the question...
2: Yeah. Punk punk fitted that slot, didn't it, very nicely. Consequences missed the target by a mile, didn't it?
0: Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, people say the single is the natural expression of punk music, mm. but it's also the natural economic expression of punk music. Yeah. Right. Um, you weren't going to release uh, a punk album, with the exception of Nevermind uh, and expect to sell much. You know, probably there are very few people who, listening who have skids albums, for example.
4: Yeah.
0: Um, but um, singles, sure, you could do it. Consequences, you couldn't do it. I mean, hardly anybody made more than a hundred could a Wii in those days. So, to ask for 11 or 12 quid for one album, yeah, too big an ask.
2: Absolutely. Paul, can I ask you to cast your mind back to what you witnessed in the studio when you were at the Manor? Uh, Did you see much of the music actually being created?
0: Well, I remember seeing the gizmo. um, And, you know, there are some instruments that are famous, like Brian May's original guitar, and so forth. And uh, but usually you can't see that they're homemade. Mm. <laughs> the gizmo was homemade. I mean, you could. Eat, okay, they they did not yet have a manufacturing deal for zillions of gizmos. Maybe Phonogram had a contractual cut of gizmos. Maybe that was part of the reason why they just kept going. I'm
2: not sure they did actually, but but we we asked Ken that very same question, didn't we? Yeah, Will?
3: no, it was it was it was developed in um, conjunction with Manchester University, and mm. it wasn't it was a separate separate company, wasn't it?
0: Yeah.
3: Right. Right.
0: Well, I thought, well, this is something a guitarist can play, but it's not something like that I can play. I mean, I was a keyboard player, and um, and I thought. I can't imagine a nation of gizmo players mm. in the same way that Les Paul could imagine a nation of guitar players. And certainly Leo Fender imagined a nation of guitar players. I mean, you know, you invent something in the music industry and the usual first thought, of course, is how many of these can we sell? Mm. I don't think that everyone threw their head. I mean, they were, they were introduced, they, they were fascinated by it, First, as an academic project, as you say,
4: yeah.
0: um, and of course they they went local with manchester they they didn 't think we're going to do this with Harvard or Imperial College mm. um, you, you know when you 're doing something artistic, it doesn't matter the venue it, it's it's the product that's either perfect or not, yeah and uh, so they came up with this thing and um so it was certainly playable because I saw them play it, um, but. Um...
2: And it produced some amazing sounds, didn't it? You you write beautifully about them in the booklet. And, yeah. And of course, Paul and I have been expounding its uh, its joys uh, for months now. It was. Do you a... have a gizmo? Yes. You uh, do. <laughs> I do. I'll, I'll go and get it.
3: Yes, we we bought one. Uh, we bought one between us a few months ago. Because of, because of lockdown, I've never actually seen it in the in the metal, as it were. But it, it's it's affixed to Sean's guitar. The other thing with the gizmo, of course, is you actually need to bolt it onto a, a guitar. So you need to decide yeah. that you're going to ruin or at least change irrevocably your existing guitar before you before you use it. So it's not it's not a simple thing, you know. Uh, no. In many respects, it's very difficult to play. Lowell could play it brilliantly because he's had he'd had so much practice, but I think it it works best as a studio, probably only works as a studio instrument, and that's another reason it. it could
0: yes, play. yes. Well, Lowell did play it beautifully, but that's probably part of the problem because he probably thought. If I can play it beautifully, yeah.
3: other people can play it beautifully. Yeah, exactly. Now, unfortunately, not many
2: people played like Segovia or <laughs> other <laughs> guitar players. Wow, yeah. here we go. Dun, 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 ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's, it's not plugged in, though, Paul. You won't be able to oh, hear oh, it right. in action. Um, oh, OK. But
3: there you go. It's not this, that much to look at, but... This is, yeah. this
2: uh-huh. is the modern Gizmotron uh, version 2. The lol would have had, like, a metal box on the on the main body of the guitar. But the keys... That he would have pressed down are pretty much the same, the same mechanism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and inside the same kind of f- fragile. Sure, see those rubber wheels? Yes, yes, yeah. but they're pretty much exactly the same, and it, it yeah. works in exactly the same way in that it mainly doesn't work very well. You get this <laughs> kind of scraping sound, and, and then, yeah, and then you. you you unplug it, switch it on again, give it a little bit of a bash with your hand, and then it works beautifully, and it's the most amazing, angelic, but indescribable sound. I mean, I'm in love with the thing.
0: Um, well, uh, that, that means that your mind is capable of entertaining two different thoughts at the same time. Yes. We, you have to both play the guitar and the keys. So, well done. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, in fact, Paul and I recorded um, a, a, a single recently, uh, a 10cc cover, actually, Ready to Go Home, you know, the Graham and Andrew Gold song, uh, which it, and it's got oodles of uh, of gizmo on it, um, and that was purely indulgence on my part, I have to say. Um, right. We'll, we'll send you a copy for you to, to um, kind of ponder and wonder why the hell we bothered. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> You mentioned Andrew Gold there, and um, I had the honor of
3: interviewing his mother,
0: oh, Marnie wow. Of
3: course, yeah, right, wow.
0: Uh, now, of course, what a family. His dad had won the Grammy for writing the theme from Exodus. It was the song yep. of the year, the only instrumental to ever win the Grammy for, for song of the year. <laughs>
3: Oh, really?
0: And uh, Ferranti and Teicher had the big hit version, uh, which is probably too much, too too deep here, uh, (laughs) trivia wise. But nonetheless, they were my boyhood piano heroes. Anyway, uh, Marnie broke my heart because she told me about the impact of hearing Lonely Boy. Right. Before (laughs) she had got a chance to talk to Andrew about it. Uh. And she just thought, oh, my God, has he felt this way all his life and not told me? And then, of course, when he did talk to her, he said, well, he had taken elements of truth and built a story. Mm. Um, But I think even after his death, she wondered, oh, did he mean it? I mean, they, they... Oh,
2: that's they heartbreaking.
3: Yeah. Uh, I, I wish he, I wish he'd chosen some other arbitrary dates because he could have made it so he could have, <laughs> yes. could have changed it with a few, a few different numbers and it wouldn't have. Uh...
0: Yes, that's right, that's right. Uh, but nonetheless, she loved him, so that was okay. Graham, see, Graham uh, has
3: always been a music man. And, um, oh yeah, we 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 talked to him and. He resp- we we did a whole album. we did a whole hours interview on the nineteen sixties and he really responded to that because he's rarely asked in detail about those songs. And there are so many of them, so many great songs that weren't hits as well.
4: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: as well as the the bus stops and the no milk today, etc.
0: Yeah.
3: And, uh, yes, oh, he's for
0: me, look through any window. I, I always like uh, amongst the Holly stuff. I like look through any window more than bus stop. I realize okay. I'm I'm in the mind. <laughs> there, But uh, look through the window. What do you see? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously that's what windows are. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's it's good, it's good. Um, but anyway, he wrote so many great songs, and um, but he once sent me uh, an appreciative note because I'd done an hour's tribute to Bobby Darin. Oh yeah, year one, and I thought, well, now there's a man of music, because if because if if somebody knows all of Bobby Darin then then he's interested in all kinds of music because Bobby Darren, as you know, who died in his mid-30s from a heart complaint, he always knew he had. Right. Uh, and he always knew he was going to die young, so he tried to do everything before he died. And he did. He had all sorts of hits with all kinds of music. Yeah. yeah. And only somebody with uh,
3: the musicality of Graham would fully appreciate it.
0: Anyway, you were- now...
3: Sorry. I was just going to say, you were about to do a talk with Graham. It must have just been cancelled. That was on in the mid, mid-March, I think, wasn't it? Yeah,
0: this was that gruesome period where some people realised how serious COVID was going to be before others right. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got in touch with the woman running the programme uh, at the Arts Centre and I said, we're not going to be able to do this. Um, you know, this is about a week out, and I said, "You know, this is coming. It's like a train; it's coming down the tracks." Yeah, we're not going to be able to do it. And then, about three days away, I said, "We can't do it." You know, and it was it was cancelled. I mean i I look forward to to doing it with with Graham at some point in the future. Uh, I, I did one chat with Kevin actually at the oh. Ivy Club in okay. London. Okay. Yeah, and that was only. Hmm, Three years ago, something like that. And then we had dinner with Sue. That was nice. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't seen The Sisters Um, (laughs) in years. Um, Which of The Sisters is still on the scene? (laughs) Now, only your audience will know what I mean by that. (laughs) Um, by, by, by that I mean uh, the wives of uh, Eric and Lol. Absolutely. Gl- Gloria, Gloria, and Ange, right? Yeah. Uh, is Ange still on the scene? Yes.
3: Yes. Yep. So as far as I know, all the all the couples. Well, those those three couples have been married nearly fifty years. Um, mm. uh, Lol, uh Kevin, and Eric. Uh, Eric, in Eric's case, uh, well over fifty years, actually. Wow. Well, that's uh, great. It is. Which is See, they which were is
0: always amazing. they were always a laugh and a half. I mean. As a matter of fact, Angie laughed more than she could talk. Um, she, she, really, she really loved a good laugh. And I think that's probably what, okay, I can't remember being an armchair psychiatrist, but if you're going to be married to somebody like Lol, you've got to be able to laugh. And um, uh, So yeah, and she, she went with the flow. I mean. Uh,
2: You'd have to, wouldn't you? <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, fantastic stardom. Whoops, there's a stitch. Oh, there's a moderate hit. <laughs> uh, oh God, there's another step oh here's a hit you know I mean, um, you know it's it's not something you can adjust to I think that's what's so interesting about ring engines you you cannot adjust
3: hmm. we were great gratefully interviewed both Kevin and and Graham more than once now, but uh, Eric is is difficult to get hold of. We nearly got there, but he <clears> pulled out at the last minute. But Lowell um, apparently just doesn't want to engage in any of any of this kind of retrospective thinking. Though we would dearly like to talk to him, I just wondered mm-hmm. if um, have you seen him recently? Well, no.
0: Is, is he still in California, or is he back? yes?
3: yes, still in LA
0: he's in LA. So, LA to me is the dead zone. I mean, I, I've I've not <laughs> been there in about over ten years now.
2: Um, I used to live there, Paul, and it drove me bonkers. I like yeah, I like uh, the weather, but there was just something about it that drove me crazy. It, it felt um, very insincere, but maybe that was were, yeah, I don't know.
0: No, there were three things about LA that drove me mad. One. The idea that there could be a place of natural beauty which committed aesthetic suicide <laughs> by producing <laughs> smog Santa winds blowing, was horrible. Mm. I would love it when the Santa Ana winds came in because suddenly you could see the mountains. <laughs> you know, you, you thought, there's some kind of shape over there and then <laughs> <laughs> in comes these winds and oh it's a mountain um, I mean such a beautiful setting that they let themselves destroy which of course leads to number two the reliance on the motor car
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolute
0: tragedy the, the lack of a coherent public transport system where taking buses was looked down upon as something that only poor Latinos did mm-hmm. um, I I uh, And that leads on to number three, which is the bizarre racial segregation of Los Angeles, which even extended into show business because at the hotels patronized by uh, show business people, you had a division of labor. Uh, I think it was the Latinos who were the car valets.
1: Yeah.
0: then uh, there were Asians who did something else, and there were black people who did something else. Crazy. And it was all, you know, don't you ever mix it? I mean, what's, <laughs> what's, what is this all about? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you heard that there was racial trouble with the Koreans who were in the supermarkets, and you thought, this is not the great melting pot. <laughs> also, the you know, the guy who wrote Day of the Locusts uh, said about LA, that uh, unfulfilled Americans went west to realize their dreams. And LA is where they just ran out of space. Hmm. <laughs> you know, there was no place other than falling into the ocean. And so you're stuck with these ambitious people who don't really have that much to offer. And LA would be a place where I would go to uh, do uh, a TV interview or something. Hmm. And you'd check into your hotel and your bellboy would give you his resume. And (laughs) uh, I I just found this really creepy. I mean, I was in no position to hire anybody. I'm an employee, not an employer. And to see that these folks were reduced to getting their uh, regular headshots updated, Mm
1: -hmm.
4: you
0: know? And I'm thinking, well, you're doing a great job as a valet, but the only bellboy song I know is in Quadrophenia. Um, (laughs) And Uh, It's just a terrible place of, as you say, artificiality.
2: And being sold to, literally every waiter is uh, either a a musician on The Verge or an an actor on The Verge. Uh, All the
3: stars that never were are parking cars or pumping gas, right?
0: Yeah, That's, right. absolutely. That's a great line, but it's true. What a great yeah. record that is. Yeah. Oh,
2: Paul, yeah. can I, I'm sorry that we've taken up so much of okay. your time. We're so grateful, and we've loved these stories. Can I ask you for uh, your, your nugget of uh, an appreciation of 10CC and what you think their artistic legacy is and, and will be? Is that too big a question?
0: No. Um, you know, I, I, I was just taken by memory of seeing Eric at George Martin's room, uh, at St. Martin in the Fields. That open face, desire to do things, mm-hmm. to make music. Mm-hmm. Um, I had cause to wonder when one of my old friendly acquaintances turned out to be the leader of the group, The Feeling.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm talking about Dan gillespie yeah, yeah. yeah, because he was the son of a woman who ran a charity for what were then called disabled uh, lesbians and gays. Now, uh, I don't know what the correct word for disabled is, but you get the point. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I would go to their annual social because I was a patron of this charity. And Danny was about 12. And he would play the piano, and I thought, this kid's good. Mm. Um, anyway, one day at Radio 2, I opened the door, it's him, and it turns out he's the leader of the group, The Feeling. And he talked about how his two big inspirations from the 70s were 10CC and Supertramp. If you think about 10CC and Tran, for the average member of the general public, no names come to mind yeah no one says roger hodgson no one says eric stewart um
2: but they'll all know take a look at my girlfriend
0: well yeah every one of them will yeah. yeah so what happened was we had this period of time where you had imageless works You had some groups that were well into image, such as Roxy Music. But then you just had groups that wanted to make records. If you asked me what Graham Goldman ever wore on any day I've ever seen him, I wouldn't be able to tell you. (laughs) And it's not because he was sloppy. He just didn't have a costume. Hmm. And part of popular entertainment is visual. And so the people of the world knew the names of the Spice Girls because mm-hmm. of their images. They were the first group since The Beatles. where everybody knew their names. Um, Bowie uh, is even more loved than he would have otherwise been because he had his images. Yeah. cc and Supertramp never were interested in images. I mean, if you were to say to Kevin you're going to dress like this tonight. I'm sure he give you a good slapping. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, this just wasn't them, and and because of that, no one says John Paul George and Ringo. They, they don't say Eric Graham Ball and Kevin. To me, that's a shame because if you put all of their work together, as you guys do with your podcast, there's an incredible body. Of Easily eclipsing some more popular and better known artists. But because it was fragmented in so many different names hmm. and in so many different ways, from Graham's compositions of the 60s to Lowell and Kev's videos of the 80s, uh, and those are things that aren't even 10cc. I mean, hmm. you know, this this is a very significant uh slab <laughs> uh, but they're not pop stars yeah. that's the difference and that's why if we can try to bring this whole thing back home consequences never got the attention it deserved because there were too many good ideas lumped together with too many unrealized ideas hmm. and the attention span of the public is not six sides of an LP Right, right, right You're bloody well right.
3: You got a bloody right to say
2: Certainly not now and even not then. Here, here. Well are you said. Sure Paul?
3: Is, are you sure we didn't have that written down beforehand, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> no. no, I didn't. <laughs> okay.
2: Beautifully beautifully said. Um Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Uh,
0: okay.
4: Well ben, fantastic. Thank okay. you so much, Paul. Cheers. Yeah, right, cheers uh, bye bye. You got a bloody right Say. You got a bloody right to say the things we do for love, 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 the things do, love. The things do
2: love. You've been listening to the Consequences podcast, produced by Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Thanks for listening.